But for me, starting Diaspora as this business that was decolonizing the spice trade also meant that I wanted to really disrupt the image of of who runs a spice company and who gets to be a spice expert. Historically, spice experts have all been white men. And there's nothing wrong with white men, but I think it's time that there were a few spice experts like from the culture that spice has originated from. Naming my identity whilst difficult, I think has actually been a, a real way to create community around the brand and define ourselves and who we are. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Padia Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Sana Javeri Kadri founder of Diaspora Co. Building a better spice trade. Welcome, Sana. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. Spices have played such an important role in world history, right from the conquerors, the empires which have fallen, the treaties which have been signed, treaties which have been flouted, explorers seeking new lands and trade routes, all for the best quality spice. I was born and raised in India and, you know, India has an abundance of spice. The colonization in India was primarily for the spice. Mm -hmm. How do you think that has changed our world history? How do you think the spice trade has changed our world history? The world history aside, I would say that um, global cuisines are completely changed by the fact that the British, the Dutch, the Portuguese all came to India looking for spices and went home, you know, which shipped highly, highly profitable ships packed with spices. Um, so something I was reading about was that at the heyday of the pepper trade, um, British and Dutch ships were making a 300x, not a 300%, but a 300x profit um, on their pepper consignments. And because spices were actually the first luxury product. So they more than the taste that they gave food, they were a status symbol and an indicator of class. So I actually compare spices today to what a Louis Vuitton handbag would be, which is that spices created an understanding of has and has nots and who has and who has doesn't have. And, and in terms of flavor and French cuisine, Italian cuisine, even Filipino cuisine, like the, the movement of spices across the world has shaped how we eat today. Your roots are from India. Mm -hmm. And when did you come to the U.S.? Yeah, um, I'm born and raised in, I was born and raised in Bombay. I'm a third generation Mumbai girl. Um, and I moved to the U.S. about seven and a half years ago now. I moved here for my undergraduate. So to go to college at Pomona College in, in California. And my intention actually was to always move back to India. My, my understanding was that I'd be here for four years for college. Then maybe I'd work here for a year or two. And then I would promptly return back to India. And now I actually live between India and the U.S. So I'm there between four to six months of the year, depending on the year, um, and here the rest of the time. So now I now I live in both worlds. Talking about how the spices influence the cuisines, Indian food can be broadly divided into North and South Indian food. Mm -hmm. Are the spices available in the North 
distinct from what is available in the South or used in the South? Yeah, you know, what's so interesting is that um, the spices that are used in the North are not necessarily grown in the North. And the spices that are used in the South actually tend to be grown in the South because the South is the the spice growing region of the country. Spices that are grown in the North are much fewer and far between. A majority of the spices that we know, cardamom, pepper, turmeric, ginger, those can be grown in the north, but they grow abundantly and easily in the south. So um, the north, as as often the, the more powerful, uh, I guess, dynasties, were, were also importers and, and were bringing in these spices from faraway lands. And it's important to have that understanding of India is that we are so... We're so vast and so diverse, and there were so many kingdoms and empires and, and nations within India, and that spices have before colonization were also were also exported and imported within what we now know as India. So there's always been a movement of these spices, uh, and what people enjoy and what people don't is, I think to some degree based in Ayurveda and in weather. So North Indian food tends to utilize a lot more of the warming spices, of the cinnamon, of the uh, the black cardamom that forms garam masala. Um, and, and I think that's to do with having harsher winters and wanting something to heat your body up. Whereas South Indian cuisine, and I, I'm making huge generalizations here, but is is more based on mustard, curry leaf, coconut, um, and less of the heaty spices. True. I'm from South India and my masala dabba, the, the box which has the spices, has basically coriander seeds, cumin seeds, mustard seeds, right. and fenugreek, fenugreek seeds, and few right. chilies. So there are very few spices which are native to South Indian food and South India. And how much do you think these invaders who came primarily from the north right initially mm-hmm. most of the uh, most of the invaders came from the middle east from the silk route mm-hmm. so do you think the cuisine and the spices they brought over um, influenced the cuisine in northern india yeah definitely i mean so much of northern indian cuisine is similar to persian cuisine there's huge influences there and you know uh, persia's use of saffron persia's use um of cardamom to to a large degree tremendously influenced what we know now as indian sweets which are so cardamom heavy um those are iranian persian influences at work and and also i, I suppose middle eastern at large influences one common belief that hot peppers actually are from India is a um, misconception. You probably know that. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and they were brought by the Portuguese in the 1600s and, and have become so deeply normalized within Indian culture, so part of our culture. Um, you know, India, chilies, it, it just makes sense. And so to realize that that was actually a 16th century entrant, um, though it's debated whether it was 14th century or 16th century, is is a fun fact. And and I think for me, a, an important conversation about the fact that food has migrated and moved around for thousands of years and limiting the conversation of food to just local or is actually limiting the, the is actually doing a disservice to the history of your food. Coming back to the spice and the spice trade, I feel the colonization, the the premise of colonization of India was for the spices as against the colonization of South America was for conversion, for, was for 
mm-hmm. proselytization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were missionaries sent through their churches. And the fact that people were fascinated by the spices mm-hmm. that India offered changed India's history. You know, the religions were um, preserved mm-hmm. because people were only concerned uh, with trade. Yeah, I would I would push back on that and say that, you know, yes, of course, it's a nice story to tell that they came for spices, but they came for power. Um, and they were willing to let religions be because they realized that they didn't need to control people by religion in order to amass power. And actually, they, they could control us via religion by pitting us against each other rather than bothering to convert us. Yeah, I, I often talk about how so much of what our company's mission is, is about decolonizing the spice trade. And what that means is just redistributing power that formerly, you know, lived with the colonizers, but they had all the power over this industry. And then the colonizers left, but traders took over that power and and really shaking up that system and saying that the trader shouldn't have all the power, the, the farmer and the the culture where these spices are indigenous to, that's where the power should reside. Power being money, capital, all of the above. How did your journey start and what is your background? What did you come for your undergraduate degree um, to the United States? I actually came here as thinking that I would either major in visual art or economics, um, two very different fields. And I was, I went, attended Pomona, which was liberal arts. So I had a lot of choice. I had a lot of freedom in what I could study. Um, both my parents are architects in India and so is my grandfather. So there's this, this long lineage of design and, um, kind of, social change through building. Um, so I, I was definitely given a lot of leeway and freedom in what I wanted to study as long as it was something I was passionate about and something that could be of service in some way. So I ended up getting my degree in visual art, mostly because I found that art was a freeing way to ask questions about the world and to critique what is going on around you. It allowed me to spend four years just learning and investigating anything that interested me and forming an opinion on it. And I actually now see how as an entrepreneur, having that, those critical thinking skills, that that creativity is very valuable. I was taught for four years to think independently. And, um, but food and food systems and how supply chains work were always of interest to me. And I I worked on the on-campus farm for all four years of university and proceeded to mostly have internships in the food industry, like from working on an urban farm to working at a bakery to uh, working at an ice cream shop. I mean, I was just fascinated by all things food. So once I graduated, I got a, a food marketing job in San Francisco, which is why I moved up here to the Bay Area. And it really felt like the the heart of the food movement. It felt it felt like where farm to table was at its peak and just normalized and you know avocados were everywhere. It, it was a very sumptuous. When place. was that? This was in 2016. So quite recently. Um, and uh, once I moved here, I think, and I started working from a food business point of view, I started seeing the huge gaps in the industry, specifically for anything in the quote-unquote ethnic food aisle and seeing that you know the farm-to-table industry or supply chain wasn't extending globally and wasn't extending to anything outside of uh, local farms Um, and that seemed like an interesting idea so that's that's how the idea started to form. You touched a little bit about equity 
um, and putting the power in the hands of the farmers. Mm-hmm. How is diaspora co different than the early explorers and invaders? Yeah, um, well, to dial it back one step, which is that in 2016, turmeric was really exploding here in the United States. And I was I was seeing that, but I didn't know who was supplying to the to the increased demand, who was providing or growing the turmeric for all of these turmeric lattes. Um, and I had a hunch that whoever it was, was likely not doing it very equitably or doing it according to the, the standards that people assumed. Um, so what be- it actually began for me as a question of like, who is supplying this demand? And then I went on a seven month kind of journey back home to India, trying to answer that question. And the more time I spent visiting farms, visiting agriculture institutes, um, I spent almost seven months just researching, the more I realized that there was a huge opportunity to disrupt the spice industry and the spice trade. And that's where this idea of decolonization and taking this very unjust system and making it more equitable started to develop. So the foundation of what we do at Diaspora is that we work with small single origin organic farms, which means that it's small family farms. They have between five to 20 acres and we help them scale up, uh, say that they start out growing maybe 350 kgs. We over a couple years will help them scale up to as much as we need, which is anywhere from two to 10 metric tons. So that's anywhere from 4,000 to 20,000 pounds. Um, we'll buy their entire harvest from them and we pay them a price that they set. So we don't set the price. We kind of talk them through what did they need in order to really make money. That can often be anywhere from two to 20 X the commodity price. Two X is for, you know, a very high value crop like cardamom where the the commodity price is maybe 1500 rupees. So we're paying, so to pay double that is already a huge deal. Um, but, but most of the time we're paying between 10 to 20 X the commodity price. Um, and, and what we're doing there is we're realizing that the, the commodity price was set by this system that's rooted in colonialism, that's rooted in unfair labor practices. Um, and so in order to really disrupt that system, you have to go far above and beyond the fair trade price for spices quote unquote, fair trade is only a 15% premium on the commodity price. And I found that there's no way a really high quality organic farmer growing regeneratively can make money without going into debt at just 15% over the commodity price. It's, it's not viable. And I visited more spice farms than I would wager, you know, anybody in, at least in India. Um mm-hmm. So that, that's been the basis of our model. And from there, we're also insisting on radical freshness, which is that all of our spices are grown the same year that we sell them because we're buying the same year's harvest. We're selling through it. And when it's done, it's done because we just bought it from one farm. So when, when we're sold out of a particular spice, you have to wait until the, until next year, which is kind of the position that we're in right now, where we're sold out of every single one of our harvests um, and we're waiting on the 2020 harvest from all of our partner farms. So it's, it's really taking what is a seasonal crop. You know, the turmeric harvest only happens once a year. The cardamom harvest only happens for four months of the year and educating the customer on the fact that it is a seasonal crop and the fact that cardamom that was grown in 2016, but is still being sold to you is not cardamom that you want. It's not cardamom that's going to have the same flavor and aromas as, 
you know, new harvest cardamom. Before we go ahead, I wanted to understand how the commodity prices are set yeah. conventionally. And do they have co-ops? Do they have large plantations? which set the prices? So, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I'm glad that you so, slowed me down to explain that because I sometimes get bogged down in my own terminology. So commodity prices are set based on demand and supply. It's very similar to the stock market where if the, if we have you have a year with too much cardamom, um, the cardamom price goes down. If you have a year with too little, it goes up. Um, and it's usually set by the government or an auction house. Um, so... India is not, except for tea, I would say, India doesn't have the same amount of large holder farms, like, you know, over 100 acres, the same way exists in the United States, um, where industrial large-scale agriculture is the norm. India is much more a system of smallholder farms who have usually one to two acres each, if not less. Um, and so in that case, that's why this model of aggregating your crop with and it's not really a co-op model because in a co-op model, you're hoping that the cooperative bands together for the good of the cooperative so that the cooperative is making more money and has more people to champion for themselves with. This model is more that the trader will send a truck to a thousand farms in one given valley um, and pick up spices from each farm, each small farm. And that often the scale that's going to measure the harvest on the truck is rigged. So the farmer has mm -hmm. no scale of his own. So he's just getting the weight and getting paid for the weight that the trader tells him. Um, and he's also getting a lower price because he's not taking his, his product to the market himself. He's paying for the convenience um, of having it picked up. And then the trader will maybe aggregate it with a few other valleys worth of farmers um, and sell it to the auction house. At, at a fixed price. Often that the tr struggle is, is that the trader is the same person or company as the fertilizer company is the same as the money lender. So there's this really vicious circle of debt and of power consolidation that has tended to happen within commodities in agriculture. So this is a question that I ask of all my mindful brands. Um, how do you know that your products are authentic? In your case, how do you know they are organically grown, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And that's kind of what sets us apart is that I personally visit each farm that we work with. Usually every year, I visit our turmeric farm twice a year, every single year. Um, so it's, it's a deep personal relationship that I'm fostering. And when I'm choosing new farmers to source from for new spices, I'm often choosing based on shared values and principles over and above um, their capacity or their access to capital. Um, because my understanding is, is that if we share the same values, we can work together to really go a long way and I can help them improve their quality. I can help them, you know, set standard operating procedures in place, but the values have to be there. And then the second one is we lab test everything. So when I was looking for cardamom, I lab tested 13 different cardamoms out of which 11 were actually quote unquote certified organic. Um, and out of them, 11 came back as having failed the organic test. They all tested super high for pesticide residue. So within the organic industry, unless you're, you're doing pesticide residue tests, it's very hard to trust who's, who's honest and who's not. Those tests are not cheap. They're $300 a test. 
So doing 13 of them really adds up quickly. Um, but it means that we have a product that we can stand behind 300%. And we're testing with every batch as well. So, you know, just because I tested our cardamom two years ago when we onboarded it, doesn't mean that we're not testing it every single lot that we get sent in. It's just how we believe in doing business. My question, whether the certification came from the farmers, they self-certified and they brought the products to you. But what you told me right now is that even though they are self-certified, you do an additional test. Yeah, we do. And and actually, none of our farmers were certified when we met them. Um, so we don't sell an organic certified product. We say that it's organic farmed. Um, and we, we have our pesticide residue test to back it up. Um, the organic uh, certification process is very expensive. So once we onboard a farmer, we've been able to help them get the certification. But once you sign up for the certification, it takes four years to be officially certified. So even our turmeric farmer who we got him, he started the certification process right when we started working together. He will be officially certified only this December, even though he's been growing as good as organic for you know, far over four years. The, the system is rigged because they want you to be paying them right. uh, the, the certification body as soon as you're growing according to those methods, which for a lot of farmers in India, that's just not an option. So right now, do you sell in the wholesale market or is it only retail direct to consumer? We do both. Um, it depends for which spice. So for example, with our cardamom, we have such little cardamom available every year from our from the estate that it's majority direct to consumer. So not even to grocery stores, like we hoard it so deeply that we only sell it to our customers on our website. Um, we are 90% direct to consumer as a business. And then for turmeric and black pepper, we, we have a fairly built out wholesale wing. I would say that most of the better turmeric lattes in the country source their turmeric from us now, um, just because we're able to give them quality assurances and standards that I don't think anybody else is able to in terms of lead testing to test that, you know, we have absolutely no heavy metals in our product. So there's certain spices that we're able to build out a wholesale section for, but thankfully our direct-to-consumer demand has been so high is that we we haven't needed to venture to wholesale. Just stocking our community's kitchens has been more than enough for us. So what are the spices you carry? Yeah, um, so we started with turmeric, which is Pragati turmeric. Um, and then we added on Baraka cardamom, um, which is a wild cardamom that was domesticated by our farm partner. It's definitely the best cardamom I've ever consumed in my life. Um, and then we added on aranya pepper last fall. And aranya is... Um, a blend of 10 wild and indigenous varieties. Um, it's very floral, very fruity. Our Pragati turmeric is obviously the, the product that we're best known for and I think is considered the highest quality turmeric out available, commercially available right now. Um, and then our final product right now is our Guntur Sanam chilies. And those are heirloom chili from Andhra Pradesh. They're, they're quite hot, but they're also very fruity and floral. Um, and all of our farmers are either huge proponents of organic farming or what in India is known as zero budget natural farming, which is um, basically organic X, like organic into 10 in how truly regenerative and sustainable it is. Um, but it's a movement based in India rather than brought on from the West 
organic was a, a concept brought from the West, whereas natural farming is is an Indian-led farming movement that I really believe in and I'm excited about. When we talk about spices, we are thinking mostly about using it in cooking. But spices play an important role in beauty and health. Would you venture in that? Um, that realm? That um, realm, yeah. We- Yeah, uh, I mean, we definitely talk about and we try to spotlight people who talk about the wellness aspects of of spices. I've given countless talks about the anti-inflammatory benefits of turmeric. But beyond that, I definitely started the company for and by home cooks like me who want their everyday cooking to taste more delicious. So that that's always going to be our deepest focus. But there's a lot of there's a lot of wonderful people out there that we refer to uh, Kanchan Koya of uh, Spice Spice Baby being one who to- focuses more on the medicinal aspects of spices. And there have been instances where, which I think is rather ridiculous, somebody tried to patent turmeric. And then, really? <laughs> yeah, in 1995, oh my gosh. and then uh, in 1997, obviously, it was revoked. Um, and, <laughs> and they've done that with neem and basmati rice, too, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I think those were the earliest forms of cultural appropriations in America, mm-hmm. <laughs> like very, very blatant cultural appropriations. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm glad that those things were reversed and now turmeric is available for all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that I've always said is that I I believe that cultural appropriation is an issue, um, but I also believe that everybody should be able to eat everything um, and that when food moves around, when we give people access to our cultures and our, and our cuisines, um, food gets better and those cuisines get richer. I think what we're moving towards now, hopefully, and, and that's the future I imagine, is is a time where we give credit to where something comes from and we, we try as hard as we can to understand the origins of something. So, for example, with turmeric, to understand that it's indigenous to India, it's rooted in, you know, in India, turmeric marks life, it marks death, it marks every celebration in between. Um, and understanding that actually enhances your ability to use it in your own kitchen because because you, yeah, you get it better. So now with the COVID-19, today is May the 11th. We are still fighting the COVID-19 all across America. Mm-hmm. How has that impacted your business? In two parts, right? The demand for your spices because people are cooking more at home. There is work from home, cooking at home, and no carry out. So how has a demand changed for your spices? And have you been able to bring in spices from India? Yeah, um, the demand has been huge. We have always been a direct-to-consumer mail-order business primarily. And so now when everybody's at home and wanting packages to miraculously arrive at their door, um, we're perfectly suited. Um, But unfortunately, we were already very low on our harvests in in January and February 2020. In March, we saw a huge spike in demand. Um, and by the end of March, we were actually sold out of everything and hoping that our new harvest would arrive by mid-April in time um, so that folks wouldn't have to go without spices. But as you know, the lockdown was announced in India. It's 
uh, one of the strictest lockdowns in the world. Um, and so all of our spices have been stranded in India. Some of them are at the port. Some of them are on the farm. Some of them are in a warehouse somewhere. Um, some of them were on their way between uh, the farm and our warehouse in Mumbai and uh, were kind of just left on the truck. And we've had to go through these emergency extraction measures to um, get our, our stuff to our warehouse in Mumbai amidst the lockdown. Um, but overall, it's it's been pretty devastating to have our spices stranded in India for the past two months. And with the monsoon approaching, it's something I'm getting more and more nervous about. Um, luckily, our customers really rallied for us and we were, we've been able to raise over $150,000 in pre-orders so that when the spices do get here, um, we'll be ready and we'll have customers to give those spices to who've been patiently waiting for them. Um, but it's been tough. I mean, especially with the monsoon approaching, I'm terrified. I, I need, <laughs> I need those spices to get on a flight as soon as possible. We talk about the monsoons in Bombay as a completely different part of our conversation, but I wanted you to talk about the pre-orders that you've had. That's what drew me to your brand. I saw a Facebook or an Instagram post about mm-hmm. the pre-orders. Talk a little bit about yeah why you started that and how is that supporting the diaspora? Team? Yeah, so, um, you know, right when the lockdown was announced, uh, initially my main feelings were of panic and were feelings of you know, what, what am I going to do? And then I, I had to take a minute and kind of look around and realize that you have your beautiful home, you have a fridge full of food, um, you're going to be fine. And the people who are not going to be fine, the 120 million migrant workers across India. I mean, migrant worker in India is is somebody that may have grown up in a small village where jobs were not abundantly available. You know, maybe they had a cousin who worked in Mumbai who had access to a job as a delivery driver or as a night watchman or as a laundry person. And they said, you know, you come to Mumbai, you can stay with me. And and so young folks from across rural India migrate all over the country all the time um, in search of better pay and better work. Within the farming industry and within the farming sector, wages tend to be quite low in Madhya Pradesh, in uh, in Gujarat to an extent, whereas wages are significantly higher in Kerala because there's a lower supply of workers. So a lot of farm workers from Uttar Pradesh, from Madhya Pradesh, where, states where um there's a high supply of workers, but not as much demand for these farm workers will, will make these long treks to, to the south and to Mumbai to get better work. So a lot of the farm labor in Kerala on the farms that we currently work with for cardamom and pepper are actually from Madhya Pradesh. My, my fear for them started to rise quite dramatically. And I, I started touching base with our farm partners and asking, you know, are you going to be able to keep them employed during this time? Are they going to have to leave? The the idea of our farm workers who harvest the spices that you and me enjoy every day, making multiple day walks back to their hometowns just horrified me, still horrifies me. I mean, that footage is still coming out of India, seeing migrant workers making you know a 10 day trek on foot uh, with no food or water just in order to get home. And my big fear was that in the wake of coronavirus and the lockdown and the fact that 
there was no work allowed to happen really on the farm these workers would be let go and they would be forced to make this really arduous journey from the south of india all the way up to the center of india that's like expecting somebody to walk from los angeles to texas uh, to give people context for how harrowing that journey is um so and i may add that the lockdown when it was first enforced on march 23rd mm-hmm. people were given 3 hours notice exactly at 8 pm the prime minister announced that from tomorrow the train stop the bus stops you're not allowed to leave your state so these migrant workers decided they would just walk back exactly home. they didn't want to stay in their cramped quarters in the big cities right and they wanted to be back with their families understandably you know in times and of- the in the in the real injustice about that system is these are workers who are paid by the day so you know if if they knew that they weren't going to get their day's wages for the next 30 days um they didn't know how to pay their rent they didn't know how to feed themselves so the the deep need to go back to their hometowns was one of needing food shelter and water and and the other issue there is that they knew deep down that many of their employers wouldn't honor their contracts and wouldn't pay them for work already done i mean we've seen this across the board that migrant workers have not been paid for the past 2 months of work that they have done so that's why we're now seeing now in mid may we're seeing the second wave of migrants who are even more penniless than they were 2 months ago desperately trying to find their way home um so anyway i've i've digressed but I, you know just the migrant worker crisis has been one of the worst most brutal parts of this lockdown and, and the pandemic for me and taking pre-orders from our customers was allowed us to pay 100% advances to all of our partner farms um pretty early on so between our turmeric farmer chili farmer cardamom farmer pepper farmer we've now paid our turmeric farmer and our pepper farmer have been paid 50% of the whole year's harvest chili farmer has and cardamom farmer has been paid 100% and that means that like money is just not a worry for them right now and they can keep everybody employed they can keep everybody fed everybody can stay on the farm and just the, i think the mental stability that that's given all of us that the most vulnerable within our supply chain are taken care of i've been able to sleep at night knowing that that's what we were able to do has it created a lot of pressure on me because now we have these pre-orders to fulfill and we have thousands of people expecting their spices and i don't know when their spices are going to arrive spices that they've already paid for that it's starting to get terrifying especially as the lockdown continues to extend and there's no real hope of of things opening at least for the next couple of weeks which is why on my end i'm i'm starting to get nervous right and then in couple of weeks like by june 12th 13th the monsoons will start in mumbai in andhra actually by june 1st the monsoon starts and you know we hand pound our chili powder for our lal marchu and you can't hand pound when there's pouring thundering rain outside um because the the moisture content is just too high and the likelihood that that our chilies will have a high moisture content which means them the risk of spoilage is much higher um is is currently terrifying me so my my next two weeks are really a race against the monsoon i hope it all just sorts out for you and everybody else that that you're supporting yeah thank you <laughs> on a happier note i <laughs> went to your website so mm-hmm. since i look at brands a lot and i 
check out their websites and into fonts a little bit. I was fascinated by your website because <laughs> it was not like the standard D2C bland and mm-hmm. minimalistic <laughs> white you know pale backgrounds pastels no it was vivid the the shocking pinks and the, <laughs> the, the, the vibrant turmeric yellows uh, that's a big risk right yeah you stood out like it's easier to kind of go with the flow what made you take that risk what inspired you? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I was actually just reading an article 10 minutes before this interview about the quote-unquote blending of uh, D2C exactly. websites. Um, exactly. They're all so boring. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, I started the company as a proud queer woman of color. I, I started the company in order to claim space and make it known that people like me exist and that we're excellent at our jobs and that where really the people making supply chains equitable and sexy again, it didn't even seem like a risk to me. It felt like, well, our website is our storefront and our our website is an embodiment of who I am, what our brand stands for in terms of culture and richness and equity. It was a no brainer that the website should have the same colors and sort of magic that that the rest of our brand stands for. Um, we were always told that our Instagram feeds is one of the most like vibrant Instagram feeds on the internet. And I, and I work very hard to keep it that way. We, we moved to Shopify and redid our website about a year ago and making it as vibrant as possible was, was a huge plus for me. And we've actually seen a 40% increase in um, sales and in our purchase funnel since moving to this new website. I mean, of course, that has to do with tightening up on SEO, tightening up just on the website flow. But I'd like to think that the new design has a lot to do with it as well. You touched upon the fact that you're a queer woman of color. How has that impacted how people accept you? Yeah, um, initially, you know, when the company was just starting out, it felt like a big risk to be taking of putting my identity out there, putting my politics out there where, you know, why stand on your soapbox before you even have an audience. But two and a half years later, it's largely been a success where people want to come to your website or come to a brand and feel like they belong and feel like you stand for something. And of course, if you stand for something, those values are going to be tested again and again and again, and you have to prove that you truly stand for it. But for me, starting Diaspora as this business that was decolonizing the spice trade also meant that I wanted to really disrupt the image of of who runs a spice company and who gets to be a spice expert. Historically, spice experts have all been white men. And there's nothing wrong with white men. But I think it's time that there were a few spice experts like from the culture that spice has originated from. Naming my identity, whilst difficult, I think has actually been a, a real way to create community around the brand and define ourselves and who we are. And it's also been kind of a guiding light because it it means that when it comes time to donate money to organizations, we know who we're in service of and we're in service of Indian farmers, we're in service of the diaspora and we're in service of women of color. Like those are my three guiding lights. So if there's a chance to donate money or to collaborate with somebody, um, I'm really thinking about 
who within those three communities I can spotlight and champion for. On that note, I'd like to say thank you, Sana, for coming on Mindful Businesses. All the best. And we are going to keep our fingers collectively crossed <laughs> so that your spices come aboard um, before the monsoon. Thanks so much, Vidya. This was really lovely. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. If you liked our podcast, please share it with another friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. Check out Tatum's new EP, titled both on Spotify. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses.